It's everyone's favorite show about all things Utah. A show where four hosts, and sometimes a guest, discuss whatever they want regarding Utah, and mostly stay on topic. It's the new Utah Podcast, with your hosts, Bree, Chris, Jeremy, and Jessica. It's episode 245 of the New Utah Podcast, uh, coming at you not live because it's a podcast. <laughs> Maybe you're listening to this in like 20 years and you're like, what was this COVID shit all about? Let me listen to some random show uh, from 20 years ago that's got all these COVID stuff. All um, these COVID stuff. Yep. I got good grammars. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's texted people, not text. It depends. Sometimes. No, text it's someone. texted. No, sometimes. Past tense. I looked it up. I made sure I was correct before I chastised. It's Literally, texted. it could be something different. Literally being used as literally instead of figuratively, which it also means now as well the opposite word. This is the times we live in. <laughs> in other news, we're getting close to five years. Do you guys believe that? Fucking hell. No. That's Are we going to have a COVID party for our five year? I probably should. It's, it's weird because you think about it in some in some ways, it's like, man, we've been doing this forever. And in some ways, it's like, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like it's been like five years. Long. I mean, we've been in this studio for at least two, two and a half now, right? Well, and probably it hasn't really time. been five years for me because I wasn't. I was on the very first episode, and then I backed away for a while. For like half a year, for six months. Yeah, we're like, we're closer to five years than we are to even four and a half. Yeah, we're yeah. very close to five. What's the episode count for five, Jess? Oh, I don't know. I'd have to look at my calendar at work. Come on. Written down. Come on now. You don't just have that on it's top 52 of 52 times five is? 260. There you go. Episode 260. So we still got 15 more to go. 15 whole episodes. It's easy math when you use math. <laughs> That's it's on a easy calculator. math when you use a calculator. So in sure. about four months. Can you figure that answer out for me in, in new math form? No. In about four months, <laughs> we will have been, you guys will have been doing this for five years. So uh, as we record this, um, our recording schedule has been a little wonky. Uh, but as we record this today, uh, our house where we record at is naked. Uh, There's no siding. It's just wood. It it's is nude. Bare wood. And I, I must say, looking at, uh, Brie and I were talking about this a little bit earlier today, looking at the, the bones of the house, the wood um, that's under the siding, the house looks remarkably good for being 27 years old. We have one chunk that needs uh, replacing under one. Of I the wouldn't windows. even call it a chunk. It's a board. Yeah, it's one piece of OSB. One sheet of plywood. You do. Yeah, one one sheet of uh, OSB, which Chris keeps keep calling OBS, OBS, and I'm like oriented strand board, <laughs> babe. It's OSB. OSB. Uh, but yeah, we just have one piece of OSB, not even like a full slab. It's just under the bay window. That we need to replace, uh, and we're replacing the windows uh, on in a couple days, and then they're going to redo the side of the house with pretty stucco and um, not then, just the side of the house, the whole house. That's true; it'll be the whole house. <laughs> I've always thought those houses that do like half stucco, half siding are really not good looking. They're not, but it's it's because of the cost. Is it just because it's siding significantly cheaper? Oh, yeah, of course it is. So so most people, the front of the house and, and maybe wrapped a little bit on the side, get all the whistles and bells and then everything else is more plain. Which I'd rather just do it all one type. 
I know stucco well, can afford it. Lives, yeah, but. but if you can't, then yeah. Also, the what's that wood paneling stuff that they're doing at all the daybreak houses? Cardboard. Yeah, that stuff is expensive. Yeah, but I quite like the look of it. Um, that's what our shed is clad in. Um, that's that's more. But you have to repaint it. That's the more thing. Often. Most people don't realize it's you have to upkeep, whereas siding you don't. Yeah, stucco you don't really have to do much to it either. Although. If stucco gets hit and damaged, it is a bitch to fix. It's expensive to fix. Yeah. Um, but, you know, our house, I shouldn't say this. It should be knocking on wood because our fucking fence has been hit twice on a straightaway. Um, but our house is not really in a spot that the stucco is likely to get damaged, except by my neighbor shooting off fireworks. Shit. Yeah. <laughs> just keep knocking but on the it, It's kind of nice. Uh, we're somewhere where it's really windy, but the way we are positioned because we're in a circle we're we're literally smack dab between two houses and so we kind of get sheltered i don't like even when it's super super windy you can kind of hear it but you, and you can see it out in our yard but the house itself other than you know the the roof doesn't really get buffeted by the wind we're pretty protected yeah i think we'll be all right i think we'll be all right jess do you have a real housewives of salt lake city update for us Yes, I do. And I'll make it brief because we only have one more episode to go for the finale. But there I mean, is a the second next season. week. Well, they, Andy Cohen said it, but it hasn't like officially been announced. So I don't know. Also, so this is what is going to happen. So ne- so th- whenever somebody listens to this, whatever next week is, the beginning of February is the finale. And then I don't know how much time is between the finale and the reunion. So they filmed the reunion a year after they filmed the show. Well, so they, they filmed just, the reunion COVID they, style. Yeah. So they just filmed the reunion about oh, two weeks ago, I think. Oh. And so it's going to be very interesting to see... Like, I don't know, the relationships. And and I was thinking today, um, because Salt Lake Magazine does a recap, that, you know, we've we've been focusing on the local businesses and, like, the women's businesses that are on the show. And I think that's really important because when the show started, a lot of people were like, these women don't represent Utah. But they really do. If you take the time to watch the show, the experiences that – um, these women have gone through, they're all business, every single one of them, even a church is all business owners. And, and I think it's That's why thing. churches shouldn't be taxing. On it, Jess. <laughs> no, I know, but I just think that it's, well, this particular season and city of housewives has been more relatable than any others. And well, yeah. The the chick that does those updates on X96 that I catch her week. Victoria, she's so funny. Her and I talk on Instagram all the time. Because they, <laughs> they do them pretty early in the morning when I'm when I'm able to still listen. Uh, and they haven't, like, gone off the deep end in crazy town and I turn them off. Um, but the she was talking about something the other day. Um, the grandpa fucker, the reason she's not in very many episodes is because she was actually added after most of the thing was shot. Interesting. So, she huh. so that's why, like, I don't think Grandpa Fucker went on the trip, um, and that's why she's not interacting with as many of the the women. Oh, uh, if she as- had gone, if she had gone to Vegas, like, so Jen lost her mind this last week. Like, it really, I've tried to give her the benefit of the doubt, like her character, but the way that she treated these other women was just unacceptable. And I know that there's a lot of editing and a lot that we don't 
know that happened. But if Mary had been there, it would have been exacerbated like a million times. Well, maybe, maybe she would have, you know, focused her ire on the grandpa fucker instead of the rest of the and maybe, And maybe, maybe, maybe. I just like I that I, she doesn't have a real name anymore. I know. And I don't <laughs> like, I messed think up, man. Yeah. So because of our weird recording schedule, I won't be able to do like a finale recap for a couple of weeks, but that's all right. We'll get, a, we'll get a really good <laughs> solid finale recap out of you. Perfect. And we'll we'll find out how many times Mary's fucked that grandpa yet. I don't think we're gonna ever know. I don't. Maybe she, she hasn't. Never. I don't know. I really hope that's the answer. I really do. <laughs> that's actually um, not the answer because they have a kid, so it's kind of happened once. <laughs> so but, let me ask you this though: Do you think that um, if Mary and the grandpa were to get divorced, they would involve attorneys, or they would use a site like OurDivorce.com? I. Unfortunately, I don't think that they'd be able to use ourdivorce.com because they have so many assets and they have homes in other states and I there's a lot of money involved and the church I think that for what our divorce offers even though it's That's simple true. That might be a little too complex. It might be too, yeah, it might be too. Complex. They are the TurboTax of divorce um patent pending on that tagline <laughs> that I created. Um and TurboTax, don't sue me. Fuck you guys. You make too much money um, into it, I guess, is who owns TurboTax. So I don't know if they are at the level that TurboTax is finally at where TurboTax does like small business crazy shit. Like they could, you could, Grandpa Fucker and Grandpa could do their taxes on TurboTax, is my guess. It wouldn't be Turbo. It would take fucking forever. <laughs> and it probably wouldn't be as good as them just getting a CPA. But in theory, they could do them on TurboTax. I don't think HowToForce.com could handle... I, I don't know. Maybe they can. I should ask Tom and Jill what they think. We maybe maybe I could have them make a TikTok uh, because they make a lot of TikToks. Maybe I could have them make a TikTok about... Um, oh my gosh, you know, Jill would make the funniest one. We should totally ask her to do that. I bet she would do it, and she could play off of Real Housewives. Who, yes, they should just—they should pay me to be their marketing specialist because <laughs> uh, they—they'd have to pay me a lot to get me out of my current job. But they could pay me for consulting, I guess. Yeah, you can. Uh, I, I, I do plenty of consulting on the side, so yeah, there we go. Jill, Tom, I know you listen to us uh, on a fairly regular basis. If you want to pay me, um, I'm happy to come on board uh, and, and give you guys f- not free advice because you would be paying me, but give you guys advice on things like, uh, you know, creating a TikTok explaining how OurDivorce.com could save Grandpa Fucker and Grandpa $13,000, which I'm sure they don't give two shits about that money, uh, no, and get their no. divorce done on your site. Because my guess is when they divorce, if they divorce, she might just kill him. I mean... There is that. He's that old is enough. He might just die. Yeah. I mean, he probably, maybe, maybe she's like just waiting for the right moment. Then she'll actually do the fucking and that will kill him. Oh, stop. <laughs> the like, you know, grandpa dies underneath you. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. See, now everyone understands why grandpa fucker is such a horrible thing. Before that, they're like, yeah, it's fine. It's just his grandpa, her grandpa. It's fine. So they have a kid. So is she the kid's mom or the kid's grandmother? No, she's Both. the mom. She's the mom the gra- and only, the granddaughter. Only the grandpa because she married her grandmother's husband when she yeah. passed away. But again, but it again. Was like, it was like willed. If it's grandpa and granddaughter, which is what it is, grandpa and granddaughter. Also, I like how a will can make you marry someone. That's really fucked it, up. It was a stipulation of her taking over the church. Um. 
again, churches should be taxed. Uh, but if grandpa <laughs> and granddaughter fucking make a baby, then she the, the baby is the baby is daughter, but also the mom granddaughter. is granddaughter. Yep. So, Too much. She's also her grandmother. Yep. <laughs> Everyone's mind was just blown. Oh, away. I knew that. I knew you were right. I'm talking about our listeners. <laughs> our listeners are smarter than that. Not all of them. Some of them live in Malad, Idaho. <laughs> oh, be nice to Kelly. <laughs> um, actually, Malad had really good education. We talked to Kelly and uh, um, who was the other person from Malad? Because it's our lottery money. That, Mike, the railroad guy that we talked to yeah. last week. He was also from Malad. Because Utah pays all of our lottery money to Idaho. And- okay, so pr- probably uh, the listeners down in like Nephi. There you go. Their mind was blown. Spring- Springville. Spanish Fork, that area. <laughs> Tokerville. Tokerville. Because ah. talking now. They don't know what podcasts are in Tokerville. <laughs> oh, really, Jess? I think Jess just blew up. She just <laughs> fell over and, like, died. <laughs> She's like, sorry. Oh, oh. <laughs> Stop talking about Tokerville like that, guys. You don't know. You don't know. <laughs> it was hard growing up in Tokerville. Yeah, because you got uh, locked in your bathroom. Fuck yeah, with, no, with the lights duct taped off and... You don't go to school for three weeks. You've got a shit where you eat and sleep. It's really disgusting. It's sorry, like but, sorry, my my exasperated side came on the mic. Oh, it was it was very present. It was very present. <laughs> president. Yeah. Uh, okay, so this this week um, this week we have some uh, some more food stuff to talk about. We love talking about food in Utah. Uh, we're going to be talking to uh, Chef Jay Looney. Uh, who is uh, a self-proclaimed culinary evangelist and has a, a really cool website. We've him forever. I, I totally could. I actually think that he needs to come over and make dinner with me af- uh, yeah, after uh, awesome. a bit here. He's, I, paid, uh, so, I paid for him. He's making my Valentine's dinner. Nice, nice. So I'm you're one of his elite one. VIP I am. clients. That's very I nice. Guess, if, I guess that's what you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> Valentine's um, but, for one. <laughs> Uh, so, so Chef Looney used to work on and, and for a while owned, um, the chow truck, uh, which is one of the most infamous, uh, food trucks in the state of Utah. And we're not really going to talk to him a whole lot about food trucks, but I thought, uh, that for this week, uh, Utah has a pretty thriving food truck scene, uh, and they've done okay during the pandemic because, you know, it's none of its dine-in service. Um, and, and, um, we love food trucks. Jess like follows them around and stalks them. Well, um, I used to before our podcast. <laughs> so four and a half years ago, I did. So, so I put together a few different lists, uh, from a few different places. Um, Salt Plate City. Uh, the culture trip's a little bit old, and I know some of those trucks have 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 uh, are no longer around. Uh, and then another one from our friends over at Salt Lake Magazine that are just some of the best food trucks uh, in the valley. Now these aren't extensive lists; there are hundreds, literally hundreds of food trucks on the Wasatch Front. So um, why don't we start with should we start with Salt Lake Magazine's list first because they are rating what they would call the top five food trucks. Yep. Do it. Uh, so the first one I didn't know about this one is Inspire Roots, and they say it's a farm-to-table, well in this, uh, well in this case, truck uh, wood-fired pizza truck. Uh, so they get all their ingredients from local food trades uh, and gardens here in the state of Utah, uh, and so they fig and prosciutto pizza. Oh, that's oh my really gosh, good. I need that. Holy crap, that sounds good. 
Um, that's that's what they're recommending that you should try from Salt Lake Magazine. And they use goat cheese and beehive cheese blend on it. Yeah, goat cheese, beehive cheese blend, organic figs, prosciutto. Probably they don't get their figs from Utah is my guess, because fig trees aren't really... You you can grow figs. You can actually grow figs in Utah, and I think that Punk Rock Farmer grows them. Interesting. But Uh, I'm not sure, like, if there's, like, a fig farm or or if that's, like, a a thing. (laughs) So... Prosciutto, arugula, uh, arugula, um, balsamic. Oh, my God, that sounds so good. There's a similar pizza like this that's on the Fiore food truck um, that they rotate in. And yeah, I would definitely try that one. Uh, Okay, so the next one is Bomb Dilla. Um, Making a damn case of Dilla. (laughs) This is actually from uh, an L.A. guy uh, that that, uh, brought a food truck here. Um, so bringing LA culture, uh, and a flair for Utah is what they say. I want uh, bulgogi on a quesadilla. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. So this is a really, it's a quesadilla truck and a tater tot truck, uh, that does all sorts of stuff. And they say the Cali Killa, which is carne asada, hot Cheetos, chipotle mm. sauce, pico de gallo, guacamole, and cheese hmm. on your quesadilla. I'd try it. Yeah. Uh, no, you wouldn't. <laughs> I would. No, I would try that. I'm not into the the pico and the guac and all that shit. The hot Cheetos would actually be fine. Stuff like like Takis are really good on like uh, elote. Uh, so I could imagine hot Cheetos would be too. Then there's the salty pineapple. So they uh, also have a they also have a store in Harriman besides their food truck. Yeah, the salty pineapple does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it is, uh, it's, you know, just like what you would think. It's, it's a bar- Hawaiian barbecue place. But they don't um, actually serve salty pineapples. No, no, but they have a jalapeno pineapple barbecue sauce, uh, that they put on stuff. And so it's, it's, uh, it's traditional type Hawaiian fare. Uh, so, you know, Salt Lake Magazine recommends that you should try the Kalua pig bowl. Uh, which is, you know, your Kahlua pig, the shredded pork stuff with green onions over rice with uh, hot island slaw, pineapple, and sesame seeds. Yeah, that sounds good. They did win first place on the Food Network's Big Food Truck Tip. Oh, yeah. So there you go. There you go. Uh, The next one is Havana Eats, and we've talked about Havana Eats on the show before. Not the winner of the uh, best Cuban in the Valley uh, during (laughs) the, the Chris taste test place uh thing but nonetheless uh that is what they're most famous for is their traditional cuban sandwich um and it is a flat press cuban sandwich and i will say they don't they don't go overboard on the mustard which i think is sometimes the downfall of a cuban is people just put too much fucking mustard on them and then the last one is steve's killer dogs um, it's not a dirty water dog stand. <laughs> he grills his hot dogs, uh, every time. Um, and, um, they're far from basic, but, uh, uh, there's a lot of different stuff. They actually said just the Polish hound is what you should go with and dress it however you want. Um, but don't forget about Steve's famous killer sauce. Sounds good. Uh, Jess's favorite hot dog truck is Dogs and Links, right, Jess? Oh, my gosh. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, I still need to just go into work on a Tuesday so I can drive over there and get a hot dog from that guy. I'll find out when he's going to be there again. I haven't seen him for a minute. 
as a closed up shop for the winter a little bit probably because that's not like a like a traditional truck that's like a big inside it's a trailer no, you drive it's tiny. Around. yeah that's yeah, a tiny trailer uh okay so let's salt plant salt plate city um had the best food trucks they had a really big list so um i didn't grab any of the detail and i couldn't print out the pictures because it would have been it was forever. so big it was so um, big. But there's 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 a uh, you know a dozen twenty on here, uh, so we'll go through them. Uh, we'll we'll kind of skip some of the repeats. Um, Cup Bop, if you don't know who Cup Bop is or the truck, and you haven't seen the restaurants, like Cup Bop is a big success story of turning a food truck into an empire, essentially. Um, and I still like Cup Bop. Sorry, there there I've yet to find an imitator that's as good as Cup Bop. They really Bumblebee really got down the huh? girls. No, Bumblebee's Bumblebee does not do what Cup Bop does. Bumblebee is a better Korean fusion. I will give you that. But if you want like rice noodles and vegetables and, in and bulgogi in a bowl with the sauces, like that lime sauce is so good that Cup Bop makes. Um, it's also like fucking half sugar, I think. So that's probably part of hmm. why. My girls love it. They love going Cup Bop. Yeah, but I, I, I've yet to find, because there's other Korean places that try to imitate that same thing that they're doing, and, and no one has been able to, to match it. But I do agree, Jess. My, my, from a Korean fusion standpoint, uh, no one beats beats Bumblebee, in my opinion. I, I love their bulgogi uh, burger. I love the bulgogi gogi fries. Mm, so good. <laughs> <laughs> now I want. Now I know I we gotta eat. go through this list fast because I'm hungry. Yeah, uh, there's good. there's uh, Black Sliders, which is a burger truck. Uh, Lucky Slice is a pretty popular pizza truck uh, that's around the valley. Uh, and like you said, Jess uh, Fiore. Uh, there's also Umani, which is a really popular pizza truck. Um, we've got uh, Yoshi Inso Grill, which is a, a Japanese truck. Um, there's a bunch of different taco trucks. I still say though the best taco truck is the one on uh, on State Street and what is it Ninth South? Um, maybe it's Seventh. Seventh. Seven. Yeah, yeah. Right. Where the, in, in front of Sears, yeah. uh, the old Sears building. That is still the best taco truck in the valley. Uh, and I don't even think it's on here because I don't know if it has a real name. <laughs> <laughs> it probably doesn't. <laughs> There's a, there's a good ice cream truck just called normal, normal ice cream. Yes. The cluck truck, I see that in Riverton quite often. Yeah, the cluck truck, a lot of people like the cluck truck. It's um, good, nice. Um, the Angry Korean, I didn't realize they had a food truck because they I have a restaurant. I didn't either because I follow the restaurant and I was just like, huh, those buns look awfully delicious, those pork belly buns. Uh, the, the restaurant's fantastic. Bree likes it too, don't you? The Angry Korean? I do. <laughs> sorry i i know that you guys are like way 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 like way into food and i only eat food because i have to to live <laughs> so um there's umai which is a uh, an asian cuisine truck um there's um inspire did we say inspire roots from the other one yeah we did yeah. so we don't need to repeat that one um just a lot of food trucks so i mean i don't know that we're going to go over all of them there's a million taco trucks Jess, you might know better than me which of these trucks don't exist anymore from the Culture Trip site. Let me open this. Because I know I know Chow Truck doesn't. Does Cafe Trang still have a truck? Um, I don't think so. They have a bunch of brick and mortars now, though. Um, that uh, The cool thing about Cafe Trang is, like, the, the restaurant, um, it's basically like a Chipotle or barbacoa. 
Um, I'm going to say barbacoa because Chipotle is national and barbacoa is local. Uh, but it's like a barbacoa, um, but with, with um, you know, Asian food, Vietnamese food really specifically. So you, you say, you know, I want a fresh roll with these things in it and they make it right in front of you. Or I want, um, you know, whatever Vietnamese dish you want, if it's a banh mi or if it's a, a, a noodle bowl or something like that. Um, Chop City, I think Chop City's still around, um, is uh, um, just a bunch of, couple of dudes that like pork. Um, so <laughs> it's a lot of pork stuff. So Cubans, BLTs, um, pulled pork sandwiches, that sort of thing. Um, the Bento Truck, um, I don't know if that's still around up at the Utah campus, U of U campus. I don't know. Uh, let's see, Cup Bop's on there again. Chow Truck's gone. Um, maybe that's it. I don't know. Q for you still got a truck floating around there somewhere. I think, um, I think so. I think I see it from time to time. And that's, that's one of the ones they had on this list. So there are, ton- I mean, that's just, it's so hard to choose favorites. It really is. Some of the best trucks have gone. Makes me sad. You know, poutine in your mouth was one of my favorites. And I'm really sad they don't exist anymore. Well, they exist. They just moved. Yeah, they're just in Washington. Yeah, they don't exist anymore. It's true to us. They exist like Bubble oh. and Brown still exist, Jess. Oh, that's sad. They don't and exist like at all, Pierogi. actually. They didn't reopen, what? so that no. doesn't work. <laughs> Whatever. I'm not driving so, to Oregon. <laughs> in Washington. Out here in Eagle Mountain, we have a, like a lot. It's not like the hub on in South Jordan, but there's just a corner lot that um well, you guys have a couple food truck weekends yeah we we actually have four that are parked there now like on the regular so that's pretty awesome jurassic tacos has made a home out here um which is like one of utah's like biggest food trucks um farmer look farmer look has done that food truck night I, they don't so much in the winter time but usually spring and definitely all through the summer he has food truck nights out there yeah you can follow, yeah yours is the food truck league right chris that you help with yeah i help with the food truck league um and they do a lot of scheduling for folks yeah. around the valley and um, it's they do, easy it's easy to go to their website and you can just like pick like you just click on find food trucks and yeah so you go to food truck league the food truck league.com or food truck league.com they're the same place you can either look for a specific food truck and they they're tied into the schedules of mm-hmm. most of the food trucks in the valley it's not all of them work with with them but most of the food trucks in the valley and you just look on a map and it'll tell you where everyone's at for lunch where everyone's at for dinner when they're there um uh they're synced off of the food trucks calendar so sometimes it's not right cuz the food truck you know, didn't update their calendar, but there's also events. And so like what Jess was talking about, like the roundups where there's like six trucks in one spot, that's the bigger thing that they do where they'll, they'll find a spot or they'll find an event and they'll go, they'll stick six different trucks there. So what you don't see is two pizza trucks in the same place, usually uh, unless the area is asked for it. So you get a good variety. Um, And it's, uh, it's, it's, they go, especially during the week, like, Eagle Mountain's got a night. There's ones out in Tooele. They're all over Salt Lake. Uh, and it's a really cool way to go experience food in, in Salt Lake is is to go to one of those. Man, hello, food trucks. We are joined this week uh, by Chef Jay Looney. Uh, he's a, uh, a chef and an author um, and a culinary evangelist. Is that your website? That is my website, and that is who I am. 
culinary evangelist. I like it. Tell me what that means. I, I feel like that bears just a little bit of explanation because a lot of people feel like, oh, evangelist. He's like a preacher that cooks. And that's like, that's not at all it. An evangelist is somebody who talks very animatedly and excitedly about something. And when I talk about food, it lights me up. So, yes, I am absolutely here to share the good word about food. And I'm passionate about other people understanding their food. And just like, you know, food is easy, you know, like get into your kitchens, cook something. You're better in there than you think. And it's a lot easier to eat healthy than you think. And I mean, yeah, I'm a chubby guy, so why should you listen to me? Well, because I know things. That's why. So <laughs> never trust a skinny chef. Exactly. That's just a good mantra to live by. <laughs> that son of a bitch isn't fat, but at least chubby. He's not eating his own food. Nope. Or he has really high t- metabolism. I mean, he's genetically blessed, but. <laughs> Yeah, I had great metabolism until I turned like 25, 30. Then it all went to shit. And yeah. Yeah, and I, I had a chubby guy. I'm cool with it. <laughs> I had great metabolism until I stopped working out, started drinking more beer, eating like shit, and smoking cigarettes all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was around that'll my early metabolism. 20s. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I've stopped all that, but now that I'm close to 40, it just doesn't come back. Yeah, <laughs> so, no, it's. They don't After 40, that. it's really hard. Yeah. No, they do tell you that. You just tuned it out. Like, they tell you that the whole time growing up. You got to be watching what you're eating. Well, at least we do that now. I don't know if in the 80s we were really ever told that. Nope. I wasn't told nope. that in the 70s. In the 80s and 90s, no one was concerned about fat kids. And then now, like in the last 15, 20 years, we're like, shit, seven-year-olds should not have type 2 diabetes. Do you think that has to do, though, yeah. with the level of like able, ability to sit in front of a computer and play games as opposed to go outside and do something? Oh, hell no. It's, I mean, that might be part of it, but part of it, a huge part of it is prevalence of fast food. Fast yeah, food I, I used think to just be... The way, yeah, the way our food system has transformed just in the last 20 years has much more to do with that than how much time you spend sitting in front of a computer. Well, because you think about it, like... Think about even back to the 80s. Like, I mean, I was poor as shit, so I'm probably not the best example. But you, Bree, you, you were fine. You were in a middle-class household. Um, how often did you guys go out to get fast food for dinner? Not very often. Exactly. And that was, you know, in, in, the, in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, that wasn't, like, once a week maybe was, was a big deal. Now, it's, it's like every night for families. Um, sometimes it's, it's every other night. But it's it's at least two or three times a week for most people. Growing up when I was a kid, for the moms of that era, cooking was part of what defined you as a housewife. And I realized you can't really say those things these days. My but, mom wasn't a housewife, but, but she cooked. In the 70s and 60s, 70s, 80s, that time frame, cooking the meal was very much so part of family life. Eating dinner together at the table was the norm. Well, it could well that, be was, a, that was... That oh, was really ahead. up until World War II. You know, World War II, that was like the iconic housewife, and that's just the way things worked. When World War II came about, you know, all the men went overseas, all the women got factory jobs, and so the home cooking basically stopped. You know, and then when the war was over and the men returned, women didn't necessarily want to return to the kitchen. There were a lot more options available to them. And so that's, you know, that's when uh, TV dinners or frozen dinners were kind of first introduced. And it, it took a little bit of marketing because they weren't well received at first, but as soon as you know, they got the marketing right. They just really picked up. And, and again, that that's one of the primary factors in why we are where we are today and how we eat. 
and most people might not. I mean, newer generations might not even understand why it's called a TV dinner. <laughs> yeah, and it's because the marketing that that existed in the fifties after the war was you can heat these up and eat as a family in the living room and watch TV at the same time. Watch the black and white TV that turned off at nine o'clock at night, mm-hmm. and have that nasty brownie that was in the middle. <laughs> the brownie, <laughs> the hell was wrong. Was the, the brownie has no. always been trash. Well, Salisbury steaks. Yeah. Salisbury steaks. I think that's all they sold. No, the only ones <laughs> I would eat were the chi- the fried chicken ones. Those are the only ones I could tolerate. I ate whatever was put in front of me as a kid. If it was a kid's cuisine, that was like top notch. I was like, they didn't even have yeah. kid's cuisine when I was a kid. I mean, like a champion in the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kid's cuisine, I think, is like a 90s thing. Yeah, maybe early 90s. It was when I, I was probably in third grade. Then Lunchables came out. That was probably. They didn't have Lunchables when I was a kid either. I never got Lunchables. That was probably late nineties when Lunchables hit the oh. scene. I'm guessing. I got I got hot lunch because we were poor, so we got mm. hot lunch. <laughs> so nice. I got hot lunch too, and we were also poor. And the way they did it is they'd line you up, and the poor kids who were on the free lunch were in the front of the line, and and you held the card, and you went into the lunchroom, and you handed the lady the card. And those were the free lunch kids. And then as soon as the actual paying kids came, they had a yellow card. So they'd hand them the yellow card, and then they'd start keeping track of it. So I was always in the... I had no idea. Yeah, they had two different ticket colors for us, yeah, too. I was but in they, the segregated They line. just added them up at the end because yep. they, they tried to not segregate us. But I like, no idea. You, you knew. Like, you knew, oh, that oh, kid's yeah. got the yellow ticket. And yeah, so the, the kid walking ticket. in with the red card and the four kids behind him, they're all of the, they're they're the, the poor, poor kids. kids. I had a Tupperware lunchbox, and my mom would pack my sandwich in a thing, and then my fruit cup, and then I'd have a little drink, and then some sort of cute little dessert. I got to be honest, though, like, the only time ever, anyone ever really wanted to trade hot lunch for anything when you were a kid is when it was like pizza day, you know, the, the square pizza or the rectangular it came in a big pizza day. Uh, that was the only time anyone wanted to trade, and I got to be honest, none of their fucking lunches came close to that pizza day for me. I loved pizza day, and I loved chicken day. <laughs> well, and we used to have ribs all the time in the lunchroom. Those rib patties were a common occurrence when I was a kid. I gave my kids hot lunch money when they were in high school because they actually had like Colosimo sausage there and nice. things like that that they could get. Yeah, well, so. that's because it was run by the damn Colosimos. Well, because they went to a private school. <laughs> well, that would be it. <laughs> so I gotta, I gotta ask you as a as a as a culinary evangelist, uh, chef, does all this talk of like horrible school <laughs> lunch food. And honestly, it was way better then than it is now. But does all this talk of these different things just make your ears hurt? You know, it actually doesn't because, like, here's the thing. I fucking love food. Like, you can make me blue box mac and cheese. I'll be thrilled with that shit, you know. But I'm just as happy going into a five-star restaurant and having them wow me with nine courses. You know, I, I love it all. Like, school lunch, like, there were highlights to school lunch that I – like, the mashed potatoes made from that potato powder – that shit's still bomb. Like I, yeah, it's like I still, you know, and the brown gravy made from the dry mix, and the huge slab of butter in the middle. Uh, Chris, I feel I like you and Chef are like are like brothers from another mother because not only Could do be you from the same mother, you have don't know. similar beard, <laughs> but you have similar culinary <laughs> desires. I mean, I, I I doubt it's the same mother. It might be the same dad though. <laughs> I do have a half, a half brother out there. I don't know, so there is possibility. Do you have a half brother you don't know about? Well, if I didn't know about him, I wouldn't know, would I? Oh, that's true. <laughs> he does I know, now. I know about him. I don't know. Like, I don't know any of his info. I just know that he exists and he's the same age as me. So, so we need you? to back up, though. 
I need to back up because this show is this show is about okay. our guests. Yeah. So the the first question we need to ask you, Chef, the first real honest question is: What month were you born in? May. August. Yeah. You were conceived in August, my it's friend. Summertime, baby. Just think back to August. What <laughs> is, that, is that a good thing? I mean, I mean, they just do thing. it to everybody. I don't know why. <laughs> I just like to see if guests can figure out when what their we're parents talking conceived about. them. It probably started about a year or so ago. They just started doing that when people would. It's important. Give their birthdays. It's important to know. It's not well, for astrological. My, my parents got married uh, in August, and so I was conceived on the honeymoon. I know that much. There well, go. there you go. See, See the math baby. doesn't lie. I found out this year. <laughs> I'm 39. I found out this year I was conceived six months before my parents got married. <laughs> nice. So, you can imagine what kind of wedding that was. <laughs> I was married like five or six years before I was conceived. So, <sighs> so get around to it. Where were you born? I was born in Provo, Utah. Provo. <laughs> I don't admit that to grow a lot up of people Pro- because Provo, but no, I did not grow up in Provo. Uh, mom and dad moved out of Provo to Salt Lake when I well, West Jordan when I was under a year. Okay. We're, we're broadcasting a West Jordan adjacent right now. Nice. Just across the street. I, I, yeah, just across the street is West Jordan. Your neighbors are burning garbage again. I know. <laughs> okay, so uh, where'd you go to school then? Where'd you go to high school? Uh, I went to high school at Hillcrest. Hillcrest. Huskies? Is Hillcrest it... Huskies graduated class of 89. <laughs> Got another mascot down. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking, we're like the best at mascots in this state. Well, we've interviewed a lot of people, and so it's fun to find out where they're from. So, uh, oh, for sure. So, so what happened after high school? Uh, after high school, uh, so I was born and raised Mormon. Uh, after high school, uh, went on a mission, um, came home. Where was your mission? Little, got married. I went to Argentina, so I'm fluent in Spanish, which is very helpful working in kitchens, um, especially in Utah. I've, I've been in kitchens where I was the only non-native Spanish speaker. Like everybody else, like Spanish, so we just spoke Spanish in the kitchen, you know. Yeah, I mean that's not uncommon, actually. That's <laughs> Spanish is a pretty common language. We're at in Argentina. It's a really long country. It is a very <laughs> long country. So if you, if you, that's true, though. It's like if, if you go to like South Argentina, that's probably not a great place. It's like where all the the, the what do they call them? The guapos, the cowboys from down there. What are they called? The yeah. gauchos. gauchos. That's what I knew it was close. I knew it was good something. Yeah, like gauchos, you know, most gauchos are guapo. It's cool. Yeah, it's like really desolate down there. Cold and what you say? I have a plethora of gauchos. <laughs> yeah, it's South Argentina is not somewhere you really want to go. It's like you know, it, it's bitch cold. Um, but so were you, you up close to like? To, yeah, if you draw a line top to bottom in Argentina, like just from the very top to the very bottom of it, and then you bisect that line halfway through. That's kind of where I was. I was dead center of Argentina, Cordoba. Yeah, I was going to say it was like Cordoba. So it's yeah. Cordoba, that's how they sound. Okay. Yeah. So not Buenos Aires, though. You don't get the fun Not part. Buenos Aires. No, that's – Buenos Aires is big. It's scary big. That is big. Um, so what was that like? You know, it was really rad. Like, you know, being able to just be immersed in another culture for two whole years and just really, you know, fall in love with their food and their culture was a tremendous experience, you know. And I mean, although I'm no longer uh, LDS, I've you know I've had several mission companions who were friends on Facebook. You know how you connect on Facebook decades later, 
And it's like, what? So you're not Mormon anymore? I'm like, no, pretty much atheist, dude. It's so like <laughs> you just wasted two years of your life. I'm like, I, I don't view it as a waste. I mean, I got to meet some amazing people. I learned a ton of things just about life and the world in general. And I got to eat some bomb food, you know? So, so what what is the cuisine of Argentina like? Because I know like Peruvian cuisine is basically French fries with meat on top of it. <laughs> You're not wrong. You know because I mean, they really have a lot of potatoes there. Like it's a they got 300 different kinds of potato there. So yeah, they got to do something with it. Um, yeah. But no, Argentina. So Argentina, it's very heavily influenced by European cuisine. Um, you know, lots of German influences there. Lots of Italian influences there. Um, their architecture is also influenced similarly. Um, but yeah, gnocchi, pasta dishes, those are very, very common. Uh, they meet four or five times a day. I mean, Argentina is at, at any given time, they trade with Australia as far as who's the number one producer of beef in the world. I was gonna say, uh, they, they're always got a lot of land. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all grassland. So it's like, everybody's like, Oh, grass fed beef is a thing. Sweet. Argentina steps up to the plate. You know, it's, but yeah, so beef all the time. And it's, it, yeah, it's the, the beef there is absolutely amazing. How many Nazis did you meet while you were down there? <laughs> that I'm aware of, not a single one. <laughs> They're all secretive down there, right? Isn't that where they all fled, in theory? A lot of them fled there, yeah. Well, it's funny because, like, and that's part of the German influence. I mean, the Nazis weren't the only ones that fled there. There were lots of, of German citizens um, of Jewish descent that fled there as well. Um, and, like, I, one of my companions, you know, his name was – I knew who he was coming, you know, like, hey, you know, your new companion is Thomas Dolder. I was like, okay, Thomas Dolder. Uh, dude walks in the door, blonde hair, blue eyes, you know, looking <laughs> like any American you've ever seen. I was like, hey, Tommy, what's up? He's like, and in perfect Spanish, he's like, you don't call me Tommy. My name is Thomas. And I'm just like, okay, where are you from? He's like, Buenos Aires. All right, sweet. So, <laughs> <laughs> my bad, being the arrogant American, I get it. Lesson learned. <laughs> so so you come back from your uh, church-sponsored vacation um, and come back to the, the state of Utah. Um, what kind of happens at that point for you? Uh, so fell in love a couple times, got my heart broken a couple times, got married, got divorced really quickly afterwards, um, hung out, got married again, uh, was married very happily for the most part for 23 years, and just recently divorced. Wow, that's a lot of. I know, bummer, huh? <laughs> a lot of things. So, so how did you how did you get into cooking? I mean, obviously you like food, but how did you get into so getting into know, cooking? Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, so I kind of grew up in it. I mean, my dad um, was in the food service since before I was born. Um, he does institutional food. You know, it's like universities, hospitals, things like that. In fact, he uh, he ran the co- uh, the cafeteria at LDS Hospital downtown for. I don't know, a couple of decades. Um, but that's, so he does that kind of food. And that's, that's really where I fell in love with it. You know, when I, I mean, just being five, six years old and going to these massive industrial kitchens, just the sight, sounds, smells, like everything about it was just magical to me. Um, and so that's, I mean, at a very, very young age, I decided that's what I want to do. Uh, so much so that, like, for fifth grade career day, I came as a food service manager because that's what that <laughs> that's was. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, the, the teachers did not know what the fuck to do with that. They were like, okay, so we got nurse, we got fireman, we got policeman, we got teacher, we got you. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Lunch lady. Lunch lady. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so when I was 14 years old, uh, lied about my age on an application and told them I was 15. Uh, so I got hired as a dishwasher at a local burger joint. Um, worked there for two years until they closed down. 
Um, worked at a couple other restaurants, uh, nothing really noteworthy. Ended up at uh, the Lion House downtown, um, okay. working their prime rib and seafood buffets on the weekends, uh, working the lunch counter during the week, um, and really loved it. Like, I loved everything I was doing. You know, I mean, they do really great food down there. It's all scratch cooked. Um, you know, that's I, I loved it. I was happy. Except for I was looking at all my friends who were like, you know, corporate America jobs, making money and buying things. And I was like, I want to buy things, too. <laughs> and like I'm making like minimum wage and killing myself for this. And I don't have any money to buy things. So maybe I'm going to do something else. Uh, so I worked for the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company for a number of years. Uh, I was in UPS management for almost a decade. Um, and as I was getting closer to my 40th birthday, I was, you know, I mean, my life didn't suck. I didn't hate, you know, what I did. But I didn't really love it either, you know, and I just as I was, I don't know, some people buy a Corvette when they have a midlife crisis. Me, I quit my job and went to work for eight fifteen hours a line cook. Um, <laughs> so I think I went the wrong direction on that one. But, uh, yeah. So I uh, got a job at the Metropolitan downtown, which uh, they're no longer there. But I mean, for 15 years, they were the crown jewel of Utah's fine dining scene. I mean, we wouldn't have, you know, Whitehorse, Pago, you know, any of these you know, fine dining restaurants that Salt Lake City has had the Met not blaze the trail, you know. And so I got to work there for uh, for about a year before they closed down as well. Um, and then I went to Ogden uh, and I was the executive chef at the Prairie Schooner uh, for a couple of years. Um, oh, man, I need to go eat there. The Prairie Schooner? Yeah. They got steak. It's like it's a Utah staple. It's true. It absolutely is. Well, I didn't understand that when I went to work there, you know, it's like, they're like, oh, this is Ogden Fine Dining. I'm just like, this is not Fine Dining. This is like steak and fries. <laughs> no, this is what's, Ogden. What's that know? place? I know Fine Dining. Martin? This is not uh, it. It starts with a, is it an M? Madeline's or something? Maddox. 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 Yeah, that's like, yeah. that's like Northern Utah Fine Dining. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I went to work there. This is awesome. What I didn't understand when I went to work there. So I got hired in uh, August, and the uh, the owner He's like, look, you've basically got two months to get your team and your systems in place because come November 1st, the doors come off of this place. Like every every company from North Salt Lake all the way you know, through um, Idaho comes here for their company parties. That's because uh, you get to sit in a covered wagon. <laughs> it's true. It's very true, which is kind of creepy with all the taxidermied animals and everything. They got like something like 300 plus taxidermied animals in that place. Well, dead wolves, dead snakes. You know, there's dead, a you know, it's weird. There's a place in Wind River Canyon in Wyoming. It's in um, oh Thermopolis, uh, and it's a it's like a Holiday Inn, and the guy that owns it has a restaurant attached. And it is as soon as you turn the corner from the Holiday Inn to the hall to go down the restaurant, it's nothing but pictures from big game safaris and big fishing trips that he's been on. <laughs> and inside the restaurant, it is. Every inch of those walls is covered with a mount of some sort. He's got, like, legit, he has gorillas and wolverines and tigers and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, super exotic stuff. I'm sure most of it he probably didn't hunt himself, and he just got the mounts, but pretty cool. I'm going to sit here sadly watching you eat, my friends. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, yeah, so November 1st rolled around, and, like, I thought I had things well in order. And, uh, yeah, we like from day one, uh, November 1st, we were serving between 1200 and 1800 covers a day. And yeah, I, so I ended up working like it was literally, I would work like 20, 22 hour days, you know, food service manager thing when you were in fifth grade, that's really exactly, exactly. 
you know, I would get like one to two hours of sleep a night, if that. And I did that, you know, for uh, almost 40 straight days. You know, I, I took half a day off uh, to sleep in on one Sunday. Um, I planned on taking the whole day, but then I got called in because two of my line cooks got in a fight. So I had to come sort that shit. Um, but then, yeah, uh, Christmas Eve, I was able to actually go home and spend with my family. And I just, uh, how I survived that, I will never know. Like it was pure insanity, you know, just trying to keep enough food in, in the restaurant in order for us to be able to cook that much food, to prep that much food. Like it was just nuts. Um, but I came out on the other side better for it. I mean, these days, I mean, nothing in the kitchen, doesn't matter how far in the weeds we get, I, nothing stretches, stresses me or, or phases me anymore because it's like, y'all don't know the hell I've been through. Like, <laughs> so you just did no, that for one, God, you just knows. did that for one season. I was, yeah, I was only the chef there for one Christmas. I was there for almost two years, but just the way things worked out, um, I, I didn't make it to, to the second year, um, because I ended up uh, teaching up at the university of Utah but uh, but yeah, it was it was a really really interesting experience, and I did actually come back the second Christmas um, to help the chef who had taken over for me, uh, just because I'm like you don't know what you're getting into, dude. You may have heard stories, but you don't know. So I'm gonna come here and I'm gonna guide you through this because I wish somebody had done that shit for me, and they did not. So are we fixing our camera? Hold on just a second. Yeah, no worries. Grace has got it. I think Maybe. the dog bumped the cord. Yeah, I'm sure she did. Is that better? <laughs> Can't see Jess. They don't need to see me. <laughs> so, yeah, so I went from the prairie schooner to teaching at the there University go, that's of Utah. So, we good? So, what were you teaching at the U? So, at the University of Utah, I taught a course called Cultural Aspects of Food. Um, basically, my job was to prepare foods from all over the world and give the students a chance to experience that culture through food. It was an amazing course, and I loved it. Um, at one time, we were the most popular course on campus, uh, eclipsing even History of Rock and Roll, which is a course at the U. Wow. Uh, I know, right? <laughs> when was that? Uh, like what, what years was were that? That was, let's see, that would have been uh, 2010 to 2015-ish, somewhere right in that ballpark. Might have been 2011 to 2016, but somewhere right there. Um Taught up there for five years, loved it. Um, and the, while I was teaching there, I also kind of started to build my own little private chef slash catering business, which I still do to this day. Um, and as a result of my time at the U, I, I teach a lot of online classes, you know, just one-on-one -on -one cooking classes and things like that. So so let's talk about your your food catering stuff. So do you, you own your own catering business? Yes, and yes, that... I've got a meal. I've got a meal prep company. I, I prep food for a very select list of clients. Just drop them off a cooler full of food once a week. Um, you know, just according to what their dietary needs are and things like that. Uh, the is it like business... frozen? So that... No, it's fresh made. So, so here's the way Sorry, that works. Is it like so frozen every... foods or? No, oh, fresh foods. So what I do is uh, every Monday, um, I'll basically spend the entire day in the kitchen cooking up ten different meals, portioning them out, getting them all packaged up, refrigerated. Uh, and then mon uh, between Monday evening and Tuesday morning, I make deliveries um, and just deliver them right to their doorstep. Uh, so it's fresh food, and it's just for one week. So anything that I've packaged up, it never gets frozen. It's just refrigerated, and they warm it up when they want it. And you said that's all that's all planned out with them based on their dietary needs? Correct. Yeah, I've got a couple, uh, a couple clients who are um, in the bodybuilding community, and so depending on if they're preparing for a competition or whatever – they may need, you know, to adjust their specific macros or things like that. Um, I've got a couple clients that have um, 
food allergies and things like that that get to be taken into consideration. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's food that's prepped specifically for them, measured out according to what their needs are. I've got a couple clients that don't give a shit. They're just like, just give me food. Everything you cook is great. <laughs> you know, those are the easy ones to cook for. Um, but yeah, so it's just depending on what the client needs, I'm, I'm happy to you know, prepare the meals for them. And so are you doing like, like, you know, you see videos of people doing meal prep for the week and they're like, all right, 12 things that we're going to heat up during the week. And like brown rice goes in all 12 and <laughs> broccoli goes in all 12 and then chicken breast goes in all 12. I'm like, that is that's what most boring as do. hell. Yeah, yeah. That's what most people do for meal prep. And when my bodybuilder clients are like in the last two weeks getting ready for a competition, that's essentially what their diet. Well, becomes. that's what they have. That's what necessity. they have to do. Yeah. 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 Uh, but the other clients that just have, you know, dietary requirements and things like that, or even just the ones that are looking to lose a few pounds, you know, it's like, great, I can adjust your macro so that you will lose a few pounds. You know, um, my philosophy on weight loss, uh, and I've worked with enough personal trainers and I mean, even teaching up at the U, I mean, I worked in the department of nutrition, you know, so I learned a ton from those people about just what nutrition is and how it works in the body and biology and biochemistry and things like that. Um, my philosophy on weight loss is, you know, any anything that promises you, you'll lose 10 pounds your first week. Avoid that shit like the plague. You know, a healthy way to do it is lose, you know, one to two pounds a month. You know, that you didn't get fat all of a sudden. You know, it didn't just happen. You got to get that weight off nice and slow and in a healthy way. Change your lifestyle. Change your eating habits. That takes time. And then just be patient for the and wait for the weight to come off. That's, uh, that's some good advice. That's good advice for people. How come my personal chef doesn't change my stuff to keep my diet going? Uh, your personal chef sucks. Yeah. yeah. Fucking my personal out. chef is, is Chris, and he just makes... I just really, make really good food. And then I eat too See, much of it. Chris is like me. Yeah. It's like, just I just want to make good food. You know, I want shit to taste good. I'm but like, yes, oh, I'm here's my portion. And then it's really good. And then I have like somebody else's portion too <laughs> see that's not a chef problem that's a well, <laughs> i mean if it's that good you know um yeah i like to cook a lot so it's it's nice. uh, sometimes difficult so you you also do um so not, that's a the the meal prep thing is just a, yeah. a handful it's like clients right but where's the yeah. the bulk of your business the bulk of my business really just comes from a lot of the classes and the online stuff that I do. I mean, catering catering is always good money. I mean, I'm happy to have it. Um, but, like, really the bulk of what I do is just the culinary evangelist stuff. So, uh, and, and the crux of that is I've got a meal plan that I do each week. Like, the foods that I prepare for my clients each week, I, I write down those recipes. I put them on the website with complete with nutritional information and a complete shopping list. Um and so, you know, for a very small fee each, each month, uh, it's like 14 bucks a month, you have access to everything that I'm cooking, all the menus. All, and I include, like, since I write the recipes myself, I write it the way that I cook it. You know, so I write all the tips and tricks. It's like, here's the way a chef does things. You know, you want to know why food tastes better at a restaurant than it does when you cook it at home, even if you're following the same recipe? Because chef Two knows things. Two pounds of butter. Exactly. <laughs> Two pounds of butter. <laughs> and not cheap wine. <laughs> But, there, I mean, there's lots of little things, like even just understanding something as simple as the Mylar reaction, you know, which is caramelization. Understanding how to use that and bearing that in mind anytime you're cooking, it's like, oh, I know that if I caramelize something, it's going to bring more flavor to it. How can I add more flavor to this dish? Like chicken noodle soup. Caramelize your chicken first. Get that pan stupid hot. Caramelize the chicken. Pull it out of the pan. Now caramelize the vegetables. Awesome. Then add your broth. Then add your chicken back in. Then add your herbs and spices. And last, add your pasta. So you've created a ton of flavor just from the caramelization of those vegetables and that chicken 
that you know end up making that soup just something fantastic rather than just something you know run of the mill. I feel like the way Chris cooks is, and maybe I don't know, maybe this is not the thing, but like everything that he cooks, you can almost eat all of those things without each other as he's cooking. Yeah. So like, uh-huh. you know, if he's cooking a piece of chicken. You know, it might be lightly seasoned because it's going into something that's, you know, a sauce or something. But right. you could potentially just like throw a piece in your mouth and eat it and, uh-huh. and it's good. And so yep. then when all of the pieces come together, they're all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's and that's a chef's mindset. Have, have you worked in food service, Chris? Uh, I mean, I was like a short order cook for a bingo joint when I was a kid. <laughs> uh, no, I've just I've been cooking all it. my life because, I, like yeah. I said, I grew up poor with uh questionable childhood so from the time i was probably seven i started to learn how to cook and i i cooked for me and my brother most of my life and so by the time i was like an eligible bachelor in college like people were just trying to figure out how to cook mac and cheese i was cooking you know full meals without a problem yeah yeah Yeah, that's very much a chef yeah that's very much a chef mindset that you have i mean you know we look at each individual ingredient it's like how can i make this one ingredient more flavorful. How can I, you know, make it the star of the show, even if it's not, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like how you treat each individual ingredient, even as you're prepping, you know, that you want to get maximum flavor out of that. Do you find people are afraid of flavor? Uh, oftentimes it's not necessarily the flavor they're afraid of. It's, it's the getting there. It's like a lot of people are so afraid to eat raw chicken that they'll cook it over a low enough heat for long enough that it ends up being just dry and nasty. Uh, when I cook chicken, like it's like I crank my cast iron up hot as can, like it smokes before mm-hmm. I put the chicken in. And I do like one minute sear on one side, one minute sear on the other side, and then I oven finish it. It sits in a 550 degree oven for 10 minutes mm-hmm. and then I pull it out and temp it. You know, so that's why our fire alarms always go off because you just cook <laughs> it until it smokes. Yeah, we just need to yeah. take one out of the house. <laughs> the one that's at the top of the stairs just needs to go. We'd probably be in a better place. But for real, so I have thing, taken the batteries out of every single fire alarm in my house just because I can't cope. One thing we've kind of talked to everybody about is how has COVID affected your business? Uh, in a lot of ways, it's actually been good for it because people aren't eating out as much. And so, I mean, my meal prep and, and especially like my my video cooking classes, like people want to learn how to cook. It's like, you know, they've got all these groceries. It's like, what do I do with this? You know, I'm tired of eating DiGiorno and pot pies every day. <laughs> I know it feels like everyone was just making bread uh, over the last year. Yeah. Damn near everyone was just making bread for a while. <laughs> you did never it's do true. that. Because I don't want to be like everyone else and I'm already fat. <laughs> <laughs> if I started making bread, you know how much bread we would have eaten this last year? <laughs> Not that bread's bad for you, but a loaf of bread a day is not a healthy thing to do. <laughs> I mean, it's if tasty. That's all, it is really tasty. That's what, have you ever noticed how much bread Jack brings over to the house? That's because Jack decided to start making bread this year. So, like every week, two loaves of bread with him well, on Thursdays. It's been that way all, nice. all the last year. So. Um, so, yeah, I mean, overall, COVID has, has not really, you know, it hasn't really affected my business other than to bring me more clients, you know, more people that are interested in cooking. And I think that's a good thing. You know, I mean, the more the more people learn to cook at home and the more people get confident in the kitchen, uh, I, I just think overall, you know, for society in general, that's a good thing. So did you did you actually used to own Chow Truck? Is that a true statement? That is absolutely true. So I didn't start the Chow Truck. Suan Chow, uh, this adorable, feisty little Chinese woman. 
uh, started it. And from the minute she started, like I had been intrigued by the L.A. food truck scene um, for a long time prior to that. And when I heard that Utah was getting its first food truck, I had to try it. So I went and tried her truck, was just blown away by the how the quality of the food and how amazing it was. Um, told my wife, I'm like, hey, I'm going to open a food truck. She's like, that's a good idea, but you should work on one first, you know, because she's wise and I'm not. Um, <laughs> so I, I, of course, went to Sue Adams, like, hey, I want to work for you. She's like, all right, sweet. Um, so I worked for her for three, three and a half years. Um, and then when she decided to sell the truck, you know, she approached me and she's like, look, you know, I'm getting out of the business. Are you interested? So I took it over and ran it for another three years, my wife and I. Um, and then we had two catastrophic mechanical failures within about six months that we just decided, you know, we're done. We lost our transmission. And then about uh, four months later, we lost the engine and it was going to be like seven grand. Yeah. To, it's we're just like, Right, you know, you don't run on those kind of margins. <laughs> yeah. Well, Seven grand to just we, throw at your truck. When we got into the truck, we knew it was going to be a three to five year venture anyway. Um, and so we were like three and a half years in. We're just like eh, a little shorter than we wanted it to be. But, I mean, here it is. You know, this is this is the decision that has to be made. So. Hey, was Chow Truck doing their commissary out of uh, Cafe Wave for a while? I the only commissary I, I ever knew... Um, the chow truck to be at was uh, the Tasty's commissary out in West Valley. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I was just trying to think because there was a couple trucks that I, I used to do a lot of business and work with uh, the guy that owns Cafe Wave, and he had a couple trucks using right. his back kitchen for their, their commissary. I just couldn't remember if chow truck was one of them. I couldn't remember who they were. So Yeah, we were not. Well, there you go. There you go. Um, but that was a fun experience, I take it. You know, six, seven years of food truck work. Yeah, learned a ton from it. Uh, it was a great experience. Like I missed the food truck community. I mean, the thing I love about the food truck community is, you know, we, we never really viewed each other as competitors. You know, we just, we kind of inherently knew it's like, look, if I post up somewhere, that's great. If another truck posts up, you know, right next to me, that's two food trucks bringing people in. If a third truck comes, that's bringing even more people in, you know, so the more trucks you get, the more people you're going to get and potentially more business, you know, but two trucks together, will do a lot more business than one truck alone will. Um, just because they attract more people. And so we are always, I mean, for the most part, there were a few truck operators who were kind of jerks, um, you know, and word got around really quick within the community who those people were, and not many people like to work with them, you know. But by and large, the food truck community is very tight-knit. We look out for each other. We help each other. Like I, you know, one of the operators, when we would double book on the chow truck, which he tried really hard not to do, we ended up double booked a couple times, and he had two trucks. Um, and he was like, use my, use my second truck. He's like, I'm not going out this weekend. Use it. Just clean it, fill it up with gas. And that's all I, all I ask of you, you know? So we'd use his truck to do one of our catering gigs, you know? And, and it, it was just, that's the kind of camaraderie that exists in the food truck community in Utah. And it's, it's really an awesome thing. Did the food should be. Right. Since you were at the forefront of it, because it didn't start that way. How did things change once things like the food truck league um, like organizations actually got involved with food trucks? Uh, you know, I have, there's not a lot of love lost between me and the food truck league um, for certain things that happened, um, which I mean, without airing dirty laundry or anything, I just, I, I was lied to more than once about what my return would be if I were to help them and support them. Um, you know, with the twilight concerts, I was made certain promises that, we're not followed through with, and I disagreed fundamentally with how they ran it. 
I just I, the food truck league. I think they have good intentions in in helping food trucks that are just starting out on the scene get locations and get business because that's one of the biggest challenges of of starting a food truck is where am I going to go that people are going to buy my food, you know? And and finding out those locations it takes a lot of time and effort. And so food truck league. Um, Again, I believe that I like to believe that at their heart they had the best of intentions, um, but especially in the beginning, as they were just starting to you know build their own little kind of empire, um, they would follow social media of all the trucks and find out where the trucks were going to post up, and then go to those office complexes and say, "Look, I know this truck comes here on every Wednesday. You know, we can send trucks here other days of the week as well. Uh, you know, can we just take over scheduling that for you so you guys don't have to worry about it?" Because typically there was a person at that office building that would handle the scheduling of the food trucks and things like that. So from the office complex's standpoint, it's like, great, somebody's going to do this for me. That means I don't have to spend as much time and effort on this. I can spend it doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. Um, but anytime you schedule the stop through Food Truck League, they get 10% of you know whatever you make there. You know, so that's where they make their money is, is getting 10% off of whatever the trucks make. Uh, and so them taking over locations that – didn't need them where trucks were already scheduled was really detrimental. Like a chow truck, we lost several really prime locations to the food truck league where, you know, we had been super profitable there, but then all of a sudden it's like now all these other trucks are coming and, you know, we're not making as much money there. So. Which is unfortunate because I mean, when you think back to, I mean, I know food trucks are, are still a thing, but when you think, Salt Lake food truck, chow truck is always still going to be the first one that comes to somebody's yeah. mind, even though they're closed. So we were, here's the truth. Like we've been closed for almost three years now. Not a single week goes by that we don't get at least one new like on our Facebook page no. and there's no marketing. There's nothing going on there. Like if there, I haven't touched that page in almost three years. Nostalgia. And, yeah. <laughs> your burgers, you know. they need to come back for your burger. That's true. Well, it's funny because like every once in a while I'll get a message from some, you know, through the chow truck Facebook that just says, when are you going to bring back your elk slider? I was like, it's been gone for three years, homie. I mean, <laughs> like, sign up for my, my food if, if service. You, if you want to pay me, come, I will come out to your house and I will make you the very same elk, elk sliders that we made, but you get to pay me. So you wrote a, you wrote a cookbook, right? Yeah, I did. Actually, while I was teaching up with you, I uh, wrote a cookbook called eating clean around the world. Um, and it's just a lot of the recipes that I shared with my class, you know, clean eating, there's no real clear definition as to what clean eating is. Um, what I think a lot of Americans don't realize is that outside of the U S food is a whole different thing. You know, I mean, although we do definitely have, um, our own set of issues here in, you know, the U S like food insecurity and things like that, those issues are very different and, and more prevalent outside of the U S. Um, and a lot of the world eats what would be termed clean just naturally. That's just the way their culture eats. You know, They don't need all the, the, the fats and the carbs and everything that we as Americans do. It's not that they don't have fats and carbs, but it's just that they don't uh, – they're not overwhelming. They're not the star of the show. You know, it's very much balanced. And so I wanted to share some of that. You know, So I shared recipes from you know, North and South America, from Australia, from you – know, um, the South Pacific, you know, the Southeast Asian, they're like, yeah, just recipes from all over that just naturally fall into a clean eating type category that are goddamn delicious. What's, uh, what's your, what's your favorite food you've ever had? Your favorite dish? The single favorite dish I've ever had. And I get this, I get this question from time to time and people generally are like a little surprised by the answer, but the single greatest dish I ever had, uh, was potatoes au gratin 
made at the Grill restaurant in the Naples, Florida, uh, Ritz Carlton. Hmm. What made it? What made it so good? It was just fucking perfection. Like uh, the potatoes, like just every little thing about it was absolutely perfect. The potatoes were all sliced in, in, in like exactly precisely uniform. Like they could have been laser cut. You know, I mean the the sauce and the cheese, like everything about it was just perfection. And I think it's probably the the only perfect dish that I would term perfect that I've ever had in my life. I've had some really fucking good food, but that that potatoes I grot, there was just something about it that was just everything came together like magic in that moment, and it was absolute perfection. Ooh, interesting, interesting. What is uh, what's what's your favorite thing that you've ever made? Uh, favorite thing that I've ever made is whether probably, that's from, I can, I, yeah. Yeah, I can send you guys a picture of this, too, because it's glorious. Um, there's a little story behind this one, too. So um, while I was working at the U, uh, the dean of the College of Architecture uh, had me cater a uh, dinner for him. And his dinner was all the other deans of architecture from the other Pac-12 schools were coming to his house to eat. And there was this kind of rivalry that they had going on to see who could have the best food served at their party. And he really wanted to step it up. Uh, so he's like, I need you to, and I have like three, four months notice of this. So I got to do a ton of time on recipe development. Uh, he's like, I need you to come up with something that's going to blow their minds. I'm like, all right, cool. I can do this. Uh, he requested seafood as, as one of the courses. That's so why I did that as the main course. Uh, but this dish ended up being a red cabbage cured halibut uh, with uh, black forbidden rice, uh, charred baby bok choy, and pea tendrils. Um, hi, Pop. <laughs> I think there's um, someone at the house. So there's a so noise this dog, plate sorry. is I mean just the white it's a cured halibut, so it never got cooked. Like it was just cured with the, the salt and the spices. Um so it's essentially raw, but it's got that cured texture to it. Um I was really, really happy with that. Uh but it's got this purple outside and then this just lush white inside. Um and so I just sliced it up and fanned it out on a plate mm-hmm. and it looks just beautiful. And then with Sounds the black amazing. rice and then the bright green of the, the baby bok choy and the pea tendrils. I, like I, and one of the guests came up to me afterwards, um, and I think he was the dean at UCLA, but I can't remember. Um, and he, he just asked me, he's like, hey, are you familiar with the restaurant um, Blue Hill at Stone Barns in New York? And I said, yeah, it's like the number three restaurant in the world. Of course I know that place. He's like, yeah, I was there a month ago for a progressive dinner as we walked through the, the, you know, the farm. Uh, you know, just eating different courses at different places. He's like, I got to tell you, that halibut dish, that could have been on their menu very easily. He's like, that's without a doubt one of the best things I've ever eaten in my life. And wow. like, I fucking cried, dude. I'm like, you have no idea what kind of <laughs> praise that is, dude. Like, I, I'm so honored at that. You know, that's, that's probably the highest compliment I've ever gotten. And that, that definitely figures into why that was my favorite dish. But it was a, a, it was a lot of fun to develop that dish and, and really create it. Uh, and I was very, very pleased with how it turned out on the plate as well. So, so how does, I mean, how do, how do you go through that process where you're creating? Cause I know, you know, for myself, you know, it's, it's been a, a journey of years where, you know, you follow recipes at first and you, you follow sure. what you're taught, but at some point, um, you know, you start moving into your own space and developing your own stuff. And how, how does that process work now where, you know, for me, I'm still at a point where if it's something brand new, I've never done before, I'll look up three or four recipes and then I'll just wing sure. it. Uh, but how does that process work for you to, to design something like that, to come up with a meal like that? You know, it's, it's 
my process is a little unconventional. I never went to culinary school, so I don't, I don't think the way culinary school graduates do. You know, so when somebody, one of my clients comes to me and is like, hey, I'm doing a dinner for like, you know, 18 people. I need something special. Uh, and I have just a, a handful of VIP clients that I do that for. They never even ask me how much it's going to be anymore. I just hand them a bill and they pay me that plus a nice healthy tip, uh, which is great because they just trust me to blow their doors off. And that's that's my job every single time. And so it's it, it can come from a lot of different directions. Like that that halibut dish came because I saw a picture somewhere of a white fish that had a red cabbage cure on it. That's like, and that's all I knew. Like I went to some of my chef groups on Facebook and I asked them, was like, Hey, who did this dish? Then anybody seen this, then you're kind of describing it. Uh, and nobody had seen or heard of anything even like that. Uh, and so I'm like, all right, sweet. I'm on my own here. So basically I just kind of, you know, decided here's what I want to do. Here's what I want these flavors to be. Here's what I want it to look like. Uh, you know, and a lot of times, you know, artistically, I'll just kind of, I start with, what I want it to look like on the plate. Because like, here's what I want the final composition to look like. Now, how do I get it there, and how do I make that something special flavor-wise and texture-wise? Uh, you know, I did a dish a while back um, using um, – so it's essentially just a, a tortellacci, which is like a really big tortellini. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was for one of these private dinners. This, the guest, the, My client just wanted something super special. Uh, he's a meat eater. I was like, you know, we've done steaks for him. We've done, you know – I've done a bunch of things for him. I need to do something really different this time. Uh, so I got some um, some bison short ribs, uh, did a 24-hour braise on those uh, with red wine and, you know, all the other stuff you use for braising, you know, all the aromatics and stuff. They turned out – if I just served him that, that would have been amazing. Like, he would have loved that shit. Um, but I actually took the braised um, bison, um, chopped it up, and put it inside of the tortellacci. But even the tortellacci, it's like I need this to be something special. I want it to be black on the plate. And I didn't want to use squid ink because that's, I mean, it's fine and it doesn't add a whole lot of flavor, but I wanted to go somewhere different with it. So I found this flour. It's called grano arso flour. And basically what they do is they take the wheat um, and they char it. They roast it just like coffee until it's like black. Then Mm. they grind it into flour. Uh, So the flour looks like ash. And because of that process, like it strips almost all the gluten out of it. And so if I'm going to make pasta out of this, I got to add some more gluten back into it. So finding that balance of, of what amount of grano arso flour to use and what amount of, you know, double O flour to use. And do I add more gluten or whatever to get that pasta to work, uh, was really fun because if you put too much grano arso flour, it tastes like you're licking an ashtray. And that's not <laughs> so <laughs> Obviously. So finding just that right balance where it's like, okay, I get that hint of smokiness from the grano arso flour, I get all that meaty goodness from the braised short rib, and then I put that into a tomato hickory broth. Uh, and when I make my hickory broth, basically I get a bunch of hickory wood chips, uh, you know, just from the grocery store, um, yeah. throw them in a bucket of water, let them sit for two days, uh, strain them out, and then reduce that down. It's essentially making a wood broth. You know, reduce mm-hmm. that down, add a little bit of seasoning. And so you've got just all that essence of hickory, uh, and I get that really, really bold hickory flavor from it. And then I'll add just a little bit of fire-roasted tomato in uh, just to kind of round it out a little bit. And serving that with the braised short rib and that ground or flour, just it was a fantastic dish. Jeez, I'm hungry. I know. <laughs> I've never thought of like a smoked broth before. That sounds incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's like, I mean, that's. Broth is uh, broth in particular is such an amazing thing because I mean uh-huh. a lot of people think of broth like oh it's just you know this thing I get in a box or it's just what goes in a chicken noodle soup, uh, but like if you think about you know like the best fall places those broths yes. they, they've been cooking for days 
Uh-huh. My aunt and I just had this conversation about broth because she wanted to know how I made mine. And she said, you know, that that's nobody thinks about why people used to get healthy after eating chicken broth. It was because uh-huh. of the collagen uh-huh. that yes. was in homemade chicken soup. So people go by, you know, Campbell's, Campbell's. thinking that they're going to get better <laughs> and they're not, you know. And I was like, yeah. that's like I hadn't even thought of that. I was like, that's actually really Freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, the, one of the turning points for me with broth was when I finally decided to just start saving all my scraps. So uh-huh. like, when I, mm-hmm. like when I cut apart a, a, a stalk of celery, you know, the root and the leaves are great for broths. You just throw, yes. just throw all that shit in the freezer. When I trim carrots, when I cut onions, all of the scraps uh-huh. go into a bag and get thrown in the freezer. Um, and the same thing, like if I'm doing a shrimp dish and I'm peeling a bunch of shrimp, I just keep all the shells. Save the shells, yep. Make a good seafood broth out of it. So when you're, you when, you're when you're teaching, are you teaching like cooking techniques? Also, are you just doing like strictly recipes and prep? Like, what's your or just kind of like a gamut? No, typically what I teach, I mean, I leave a lot of it up to you know what it is the student wants to learn. Um, but regardless of what it is they want to learn, I'm always infusing that with the little things that I've learned. You know, like I'll talk to them about the myelin reaction. I just recently had. Uh, a gal who's doing keto um, come to me and it's like, hey, I really need to learn how to cook pork chops because my moms are always dry. I can't cook them any better than my mom. Like I just, and I've had pork chops that are really good, just really luscious and delicious. I need to know how to cook them. I was like, sweet. You know, so we got together for a cooking class um, and I talked to her about the Mylard reactions. Like here's how to work this. And here's, how, you know, same way I do chicken, you know, get a good sear and get a stupid hot pan, get a good sear on both sides Finish it in the oven uh, and let it rest for, you know, eight to ten minutes. That You're going to have a, a winner every single time. You know, so it's those little things, the techniques. So it's like, you know, make sure you rest it. You know, a lot, not everybody knows that when they're cooking a piece of meat. Make sure you let it rest. Uh, you know, when I'm cooking pork chops and steaks in particular, I salt and pepper them a good hour before they go into the pan. So I'll salt mm-hmm. and pepper them, yep. let them sit at room temp and just hang out for an hour before I ever put them in the hot pan. You know, it's, and it's those little things that aren't necessarily taught or you know, there's no compendium of, oh, here's all the little t- tips and tricks that chefs use all over the world. So I like to teach those and share with people, you know, here's how to get shit that tastes really, really good. Just, you know, utilizing this little bit of knowledge, you know, and by yeah. sharing that with them, it's like it just kind of ignites their passion. It's like, oh, shit, I can make really good food, you know, and they become a lot more confident in the kitchen. And then they start to, you know, let their own creativity kind of take over. Well, there has to be some kind of pride for yourself too, not going to culinary school and teaching people these things that you yourself have had to, you know, seek, you know, to, to make yourself a great chef, you know, you're not, you're not at the Salt Lake Culinary School learning flambe and, and all the different techniques. And and I I think there has to be some kind of, I hope there's a pat on the back. I guess guess what I'm saying. (laughs) I definitely take no small amount of pride in the fact that I am. I hate to use the term self-taught because that's not accurate at all. Um, But that that what I know is knowledge that I've learned through experience. You know, I've worked for some really fantastic chefs. Yeah, I'm not classically trained. I've learned some from really fantastic chefs along the way. I've worked in some amazing kitchens and and gleaned a ton of info from them. I mean, most recently, I spent about a year working with uh, Chef Matt Crandall at Whiskey Street and Whitehorse, you know. Um, he's an old friend of mine and he needed a hand and, you know, had a position available. And I was like, eh, sure, let's give this a try. You know, we did it for about a year and, and I learned a ton from him. I have mad respect for, 
you know, what it is he does and, and the way that he runs his restaurants. That's awesome. Do you teach people, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you've talked about steering and stuff like that, but do you teach them, you know, proper preparation techniques as well? I, I feel like that's a, a thing that I see when I see friends cook that is way um, missing. They're not prepping stuff ahead of trying to cook. And uh, that's probably the number one. <laughs> that is the number one killer when it comes to putting a meal together and, and being able to time everything is just not having stuff ready. Yeah, it's true. Well, one of the like anytime I'm starting off with a new student, the very first thing we talk about, like usually the first class, we don't cook at all. Like we're just going through basics. It's like here's the deal, you know, you need to get yourself a decent cutting board. You know, that little roll up plastic mat that you think is so cool because you roll it up and <laughs> dump veggies in. It's I, they're the worst. That thing's shit. Get rid of it. You know, get Slips yourself all a, over a, the place. Yeah, get yourself a natural fiber cutting board, wood, bamboo. I don't care. Some natural fiber type of cutting board. Um, put a damp towel down before you put your cutting board down so your cutting board is not sliding all over your goddamn counter. Hold your knife correctly. You know, like we go through like just how to hold a knife because most people have no idea how to hold a knife the proper way. You know, they figure, oh, here's a handle. Let's hold it by that. You know, and there's <laughs> something on a fucking psycho, you know, with your blade wobbling around <laughs> out there. Pushing, pushing their finger down on it. Yes. So it's like, I've oh, got, you're... I've got uh, a really nice set of knives um, and the handles on them. Uh, are they're not traditional knife handles that you would see on most like chef's knives and and uh, Nantucos and stuff. It's uh it's it's almost triangular, and uh, uh-huh. how it folds into the blade, and it basically forces you to hold your hand correctly on the knife. It's a really what, what, kind, of, what kind of knife is it? I don't know. I bought it like ten years ago, twelve years ago. I bought it before I was with Bree, so for probably twelve years, 12 ago. years ago. But they're still my knives. I mean, they're two hundred and fifty, three hundred dollars a knife knives. So. Yeah, I'll go look. They might be. Are they the portion design ones? Um, I don't know. Because <laughs> <laughs> the way you're describing it, so portion design has a, a line of knives they re- they released through Chroma, uh, and their their handle design is such that there's no other choice but to hold it the right way, and it's very triangular, like you're like you're talking, like you you have to hold the knife the right way using their knives. There's no other way to hold it. I'm looking at portion design knives <laughs> to see, and things like keep your knife sharp. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Just keep your knife sharp. Well, it, it, it's not even that hard, right? Like it's it's pretty. Yeah, it's similar. I mean, the back of it is is more rectangularly squared, um, but the oh, I guess this just doesn't have an actual thing on it. Yeah, it's similar though. Similar. Similar to those. Come to that point. Yeah, I come to that point at the base of the blade where you should be holding your fingers correctly uh-huh. and stuff. I've seen yeah. people struggle to cut a tomato and they're almost smashing it. Oh my god. It's like yeah, sharpen your knife. If you have a sharp knife, you should be able to cut through that tomato without any problem. Well, I mean, really, like I, well, like the knives that I bought, I this last year was the first time I've had them professionally sharpened in since I bought them for twelve years, and that's just because I hone them before I use them every single time. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. If you hone your knife, like just takes I get my a couple knife sharpened uh, three, four times a year tops, um, and I you take probably cook I do not sharpen my own. Yeah, I mean, I spend you know a good six to eight hours a day with a knife in my hand. So yeah, so I cook. I cook like you know four or five times a week for an hour. So <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, so I, I take my knives to a sharpener that I trust because sharpening knives is an art form in and of itself, and a lot of chefs have you know learned that art and are good at it. I'm not interested. I would rather spend my time cooking than sharpening my knife. So it's not that I expensive either. Exactly. Like my guy charged me 79 cents an inch, which means I can get my whole kit sharpened for 
like 50 bucks. That's, that's there's a working. truck that's at the farmers that has been at the farmers market. I don't know if they they're doing it right now, but they sharpen knives. That, that's who did my knives. Yeah. And that's yeah. it's the same thing. It's like 70 cents an yeah. inch, so. Yeah. It's, it's cheap as shit, you know. And, and my guy, he knows me, he knows my knives and he does a good job. So why would I not pay him to do his art because he's not going to, you know, if you want somebody to cook him a damn fine meal, he's going to call me. Well, and we've we've talked we've kind of talked about that a, a bit on the show before. You know, people like that people that do knife sharpening, um, cobblers. Th- those are professions that are that are dying off uh, because yeah. people just don't use them because they would rather go get a shitty fifteen dollar knife block out of Walmart. The Faber <laughs> home goods baby that starts out not sharp. That starts out as a fucking danger okay. in the kitchen where you're gonna cut your damn finger off trying to cut a loaf oh. of bread. One of the one of the questions I get often. <laughs> Like people will message me with this question. Hey, so I'm thinking of getting a new knife set. What should I get? It's like, okay, number one, don't get a fucking set. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Knowing you, like just if you're like any of the average home cooks out there, you need like three knives. You do not need like the whole set with all the 12 steak you knives. Need you don't need a, any of that. Okay. You need a good chef's knife. Yep. A paring knife, typically. Yep. What's the third knife? I recommend a serrated knife too, just because it has, yeah. you know, for lots of uses. Yeah. For breads. I, there's, you know, like when I'm doing pineapple. I use mm-hmm. my serrated knife. It's just easier. You don't you don't uh, do the trick where you like hit the pineapple and pull the pieces out off of their little spikes. I haven't tried. I've seen that trick. I want to try it or some shit. But yeah, I haven't tried that one yet. <laughs> I just bought a core. There are two different ways to prep a pineapple. One's like the super easy way, which I usually do. The other, which is a long, hard, stupid way, turns out looking just beautiful. So like when I'm doing show pieces, that's what I do. The uh, the little knobs on the pineapple go in kind of a helix pattern around down through the pineapple. And so if you cut off and leave, you just barely cut off the skin so that all the little spots are still showing. And then if you just follow the spots as you go around, you can just cut them out and you'll end up with this like helix patterned pineapple that's really rad. Oh, that's awesome. I got a different tool for pineapple. It's over here. <laughs> his, his like kitchen is behind our, we have like the space space uh, curtain thing that all the kids like behind you I can see your kitchen aid it looks just like that in our office in our uh, in our oh, yeah, studio no, so I'll show, I'll show you yeah this is this is how you know a chef lives here let me put this around I'll show you my kitchen's <laughs> my kitchen's fucking small where's my there it is I have a pineapple core that's the only okay, thing so I, you got, yeah, I got <laughs> something like that down I got here. studio lights because I was filming a video you know but I got like my shelves with like you know, my KitchenAid, my food processor, my sous vide and stuff, waffle iron, bowls, spices and shit. You know, like this is – and it's not like a big apartment or anything, but like this is, you know, this is what I got. Okay. Yeah, so that's – I mean, I'm working with a little bit bigger kitchen. That's amazing. Like, yeah, you know, a chef lives here. <laughs> yeah, so my kitchen is not big enough to hold all the shit that I use. Like, so I don't have yeah. enough space for all my pans and various things. So I have – you know, my, my wok is down here, so when I use a wok and you know, all my various gadgets are down here. Well, I, I have that. I have my cabinet in my garage full of all my cake baking stuff. Yeah. So I, I mean, I try not to buy – there's very few unitaskers that I buy. So like that pineapple yeah. core, it's good for one fucking thing. Yeah. Coring and, and putting pineapple into rings. And I love the shit out of that thing because then it leaves like this awesome like husk of a pineapple – that's full of juice that you can use for other things. It's fantastic. Uh-huh. Um, but I try not to buy too many of those. Yeah. I'm not a fan of like, just, they take up space. The, like if it just is one thing and does it well, it's like, 
okay, I'd rather find, you know, I'd rather you do it myself or find something that you can do a couple different things. You know? Yeah, exactly. So I, I feel you. I feel you. Hey, um, my phone is at 10% energy, so give me just a second. I'm going to plug in here. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's okay. Just the technology struggles are real. Yeah. yeah. I know. Well, it's funny because like at 4 o'clock, I was like, oh, shit, I, got, I better charge my phone. You know, I was down like 30%. So I plugged it in, put it on airplane mode, and like left it alone for, I don't know, an hour and a half. And it's like, you're at 43%. I was like, you should be fully charged, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you an hour and a half. What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's uh, it's a lazy Wednesday. That's why. Sure. <laughs> it is. All right. We're all plugged in and set. Oh, I was just going to, I was going to say while you're plugging in, I just want to know how you feel about the old saying of chefs baking and bakers chefing. Is that, is that a, a fact? What? What's the saying? I'm can sure. you can you can chefs don't like to bake? Chefs can't bake. Bakers can't chef. That's bullshit. You know what they call um, real bakers? Pastry chefs. It's true. It's absolutely true. And I have no interest in being a pastry chef. I can <laughs> I can make I make really good bread. I can make brownies. Um, I make a but killer. Can you make rice krispie treats? That's all that matters. Oh fuck yeah. <laughs> okay, then you can be a professional cake decorator. In fact, because yeah. I'm pretty sure here, they do. This. <laughs> rice krispie treats okay the last time i made rice krispie treats because you know bacon is an awesome thing i was like all right here's what we're gonna do i'm gonna do 50 percent bacon fat and 50 percent butter in with the marshmallow mix and then i'm gonna throw some chocolate chips and some crumbled bacon in with the rice krispie treats i'm here for that see I can turn make out. a nice crispy treat. Oh, dude, they were fucking delightful. I need to try. The so there's a, there's a deli by my house. I live down in Eagle Mountain, and there's a deli by my house, and she used clarified butter for hers, and it is nice. amazing. Straight ghee for it, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. I'm gonna I, now you've got me wanting to make rice crispy treats and with bacon grease. Do it. Here's the That's... thing: even if even if you just use butter, if you brown the butter before yes. you put the oh, marshmallow yep. in, it makes all the difference in the world. Okay, I'm going to blow your mind. <laughs> Fuck Rice Krispies. Fruity Pebbles. <laughs> or oh, cornflakes. for the Fruity Pebbles, yeah. Cornflakes are where it's at, too. The Fruity Pebbles, I can't stop eating when I make those. Me, too. <laughs> That's what every time I do a cake that I have to use Rice Krispie treats, I always try to do something that'll match the cake. So, you like Cinnamon Toast Crunch or uh-huh. Fruity Pebbles or something like that. That's where it's at, I, I love Fruity Pebbles treats. The other one, too, that's like, just like fucking diabetes waiting to happen and I will eat an entire batch of these just by my own damn self because I'm a fatty. Uh, Captain Crunch's Crunch Berries. Ooh, that would be good because I've done like Golden Grams with chocolate mm, and right. that's that's really good, but oh, Crunch Berries. I'm going to be trying <laughs> if you, that. Too. Dude, if you really want to kick that one up a notch, get yourself a bag of dehydrated strawberries and throw that in as well. Mm. Yeah, that's not happening, Bree. Strawberry. I think I think if I made those and put strawberries in them, she'd just be ultimately pissed. But I bet it would work good with like other some other dehydrated stuff. Yeah, dehydrated fruits are awesome. Yeah, like the freeze dried ones, like a little little crispy and stuff. The Trader Joe's blueberries. That's the ones. Yep. Not the Trader Joe's watermelon jerky. That is the nastiest fucking shit I've ever had in my life. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking when I was like, "Hey, let's try it." Trader Joe's can't do me wrong, can they? They're, they're, they're like they the, the best. No, they, they fucking did. That stuff was nasty. It was horrible. <laughs> Chef, we have uh, we have one more question for you, and then we'll yeah. we'll let you go to your buying phone. Um, 
What's the most interesting or unique thing that you've discovered about Utah in all your time here? I've lived here most of my life. Let's see, the most unique thing. Okay, here's one for you. Uh, Last I checked, which was about a year ago, uh, Salt Lake proper had 17 different Ethiopian restaurants. Wow. (laughs) Right? That is definitely awesome. Ethiopian food is really spicy, by the way. I don't think people realize that. (laughs) No. It's so good. I mean, you think about it. Ethiopia has been the crossroads of the spice trade for thousands of fucking years. Mm -hmm. They know what they're doing when it comes to spice. So, yeah, it's it's got some spice to it. And the the thing that's always fascinating to me is, you know, when people in Utah are like, I don't know where to go to eat. There's nowhere to eat. Fuck off. Like Utah, Salt Lake City in particular, but Utah in general has more cultural diversity in our food scene than pretty much anywhere else in the nation. Like legit, I talk to cooks all across this nation, you know, from LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, you know, Miami. And they're amazed at the different kinds of food that we have here, just the diversity we have here. You know, yeah. we've got Ethiopian, we've got Russian, we've got Jewish delis, we've got, mm-hmm. you know, all kinds of Sudanese. You know, South American stuff. Yeah, we got Sudanese, we've got mm-hmm. Peruvian, we've got, you know, Brazilian, we've got, you know, our, like everywhere you, is represented here. In you know, you know why, another. right? You were a missionary. Yep. <laughs> yeah, well, it's missionaries. And it, it really is a big is, part of it. Yeah, no, for it's sure. a huge part of it. But people don't realize this, but Salt Lake City uh, settles um, between 800 and 1,000 refugees every single year. You know, and these refugees are coming with basically one of two skill sets. They either have culinary skill sets or they have agricultural skill sets. And, we and both of those to, uh, play into our food scene here. We, we talked to Chef Diaz from Fillings and Emulsions a couple weeks ago. He's yeah. a refugee from Cuba. Yeah, he's a rad dude. He's a friend of mine. He's we need to get awesome. the Rico guy on too. He also is oh, yeah. an immigrant. Or hey, owner, Jorge Jorge Fierro, he's a good yeah. dude too. Also a yeah. friend of mine. Trina at Buzz was like, "You've got to get him on." I was like, "Yes, that's a fact." <laughs> It'll yeah, be Jorge, the year of chef. A rad dude. <laughs> I could talk about food for like hours and hours and hours. So, oh, um, same dude. I'm, I'm a fat kid. I'm, I'm not probably the evangelist you are, but I love food. I love cooking it. I love talking about it. I like eating it. I love experiencing it and, yes. and going to different places. Yeah. That, you're right. That's one of my favorite things about Salt Lake is that that cultural diversity, especially in food. Like, and it's not just that we have a Peruvian restaurant or a Vietnamese place. It's that they're amazing. They're really yeah. good. And and I would beg to say that the majority of them are family family run and uh-huh. you know it's it's so like, cool okay have you been to fucking chick queen before <laughs> is that the one on korean 50? Fr- no it's oh. a korean fried chicken place in the chinese supermarket on 33rd oh no we just barely talked I about have been there. So- no they've been open for like a year and a half two years now oh it's the other one that there's you're talking a, about there's just a opened. korean hot pot location that's what it was that just opened yeah. chick queen is like it's the best like spicy fried chicken i've ever had it's so good oh it's amazing it's amazing it's, it's great it's great. And that Korean bakery that's right there, too. Oh, so man. good. Oh, and the yeah. boba tea place that's right there, too. So good. Yeah. Like, got, uh, <laughs> like Mayanga uh, over by, what is it now, the Maverick Center? Yeah. Um, uh-huh. I think it's the old training table restaurant space. That place is a great Korean place. And they have they have their own being sue machines. And so they make that fucking Korean shaved milk ice stuff. Uh-huh. You've got Gura's. You've got Himalayan Kitchen. That's yeah. some amazing food. The Bhutan House. Oh. The yeah. best. It's, we just have such diversity. Listen, we just keep talking. The, 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 <laughs> momos, the Momos, the Momos, Emily and Kitchen. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that's yes. good. Yeah. Got curry pizza. What a what a oh. great idea. And that's just amazing stuff. So, Chef, we could talk about this all <laughs> night, but how do people how do people find you and, and get engaged with you and sign up for meal plans or, or classes or anything? Uh, the easiest way is the, the website, the culinaryevangelist.com. Um, or I mean I'm all over Facebook, you know, easy to find there as well. Just the culinary evangelist. Uh, I'm on Instagram, culinary evangelist. Hell, I'm even on TikTok as the culinary evangelist. So find me. Excellent. I'd love to cook for you. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Chef. It's been a fantastic conversation. My pleasure. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, thanks to thanks to Chef Looney for uh, chatting with us. Um, I think that he and I could. Uh, you and I could talk for a while. Just yeah, us. You guys are very similar. We could bro down and <laughs> bro down. Go to I, I wanna I wanna be on his special elite list and have him make me some dinners. Jess uh, knows you, how. Yeah, you pay him a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it's cheap. I don't think it's cheap. No. You do private chef work, it ain't That's cheap. That's why I just I'm just marrying Chris. What what is actually relatively um Inexpensive though is his, are his meal plans, uh, and the meal plans are if you if you don't really want to think about what to eat, uh, and you want to say, hey, these are the things I like and I don't like. Um, he generates these weekly meal plans um, and monthly meal plans, and it's everything. It's what you need to buy. It's instructions on how to cook it. It's like Hello Fresh, but from a real person, and you buy your own food, and so you can still buy local stuff. You're supporting a local business, um, which is a really cool, really cool idea in there they're somewhat tailored to your nutritional needs. And so uh, pretty, pretty cool stuff, a pretty cool business that, that he's created and, and uh, appreciate being able to, to really kind of nerd out with him on food. If you like what you heard tonight uh, or today, sorry, I'm just, we record in the evenings usually, and it's so much easier to say tonight. If you like what you heard, no matter what time you heard it during the day, <laughs> you like what you heard. Uh, please share it. That's what helps us the most uh, on whatever platform you like to share stuff. If that's Twitter or Facebook or SoundCloud or I don't fucking know where else people talk. If you're doing it on Reddit or 4chan or um, Backpages or <laughs> Backpage. Craigslist. Is Craigslist still around? KSL yes, Classified. For sure. Um, Tinder. MySpace. What? <laughs> I don't know. MySpace actually does exist still. If you want to put it up on, isn't um, it just like music stuff though? Mostly. What like was the what was the conservative uh, Twitter site or the conservative Facebook site? The start of the P was a um, path or uh, something. I don't know. If you want to put it up on that site, that's fine. Don't share it on like the Proud Boys forums though. I don't want them listening. Um, they're probably not going to like the show, so you can save us that one. Um, and if you don't like it, then go ahead. By all means, share it on like the Proud Boy site and see if they all hate it too, but then they'll listen and maybe they won't. <laughs> um, did you guys see Burgess Owens apologize yeah. to everyone? Yes, and takes back his Marxist slash socialist. Yeah, apparently when you get to Washington and uh, the guy that you've been like a complete fanboy of – uh, is facing a lot of problems, and most of most of the Republicans are really downplaying what he did. Um, and then you're trying to make deals with Democrats who are controlling the bodies of Congress. Suddenly, you can't just call them Marxist and liberals and get suddenly you can't just be a, an asshole. Yeah, basically, just basically not an asshole. You, you oh fuck, there's actually people there. Weird. Uh, to be fair, we all we all know he was just. Uh, 
whatever. I don't want to talk about it anymore. He was on this show, though. That's a that's a big get for us. Um, uh, maybe I don't yeah. know. I, don't, I think it's. I would consider it more interesting than big. Um, I mean, it's. Well, we had a we had a a competitive, you know, U.S. congressman or co- potential congressman on the show to talk to us about stuff, and that's a pretty big deal. Um, you know, if we could get him back now that he's. Oh uh, no, I couldn't. Do that. <laughs> if you get him back, I'm I'm washing my hair that night. <laughs> Um, I don't think he would come back necessarily. Um, he might have aides that listen to this show and they're like, meh, probably that's not a good idea, man. <laughs> um, you can follow us on social media at TNU podcast or, uh, go check out our website, the new Utah.com, uh, and see what we're all about there. Um, you know, we, uh, we invite you to join us, uh, any, any which way possible, uh, and share this out with, with everyone else. So. Have a uh, have a good week and um eat some good food. Eat some good local food. <laughs>